This is an ECU Ready Podcast. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the ECU Ready Podcast. I'm your host, Lamar Gilchrist. This episode is going to cover food insecurity in rural North Carolina, how food banks help the local population, and the importance of nutrition education. Hope you enjoy. The Purple Pantry is a food bank located at ECU's new main campus student center. The Purple Pantry has collected more than 1,000 pounds of non-perishable goods and toiletries since opening in 2018 and has provided more than 175 meals to ECU students. Travis Miles, volunteers at the Purple Pantry. Travis, thank you for speaking with us today. No problem, man. It's my pleasure. So, Travis, can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved with the Purple Pantry? So, I got involved with the Purple Pantry through the food bank here in Greenville. It's, um, I think it's the central, eastern central NC Food Bank, something yeah. like that. And uh, the coordinator over there, Brittany Freeze, she was putting me in contact with more resources and able to get more um, volunteer hours. So she put me in contact with Jar Michael, and then I've just been working there ever since. And can you explain what the Purple Pantry is for people who haven't heard of it? So the Purple Pantry is, um, their focus is sustainability and um, like feeding the community uh, here in Greenville so like students can go um, as long as you have a one card you can go and access the purple pantry and get whatever you need from it um, they have hygiene products uh, non-perishable goods canned goods um, they have lots of variety in there of stuff you can choose from and uh, they just make you fill out this form um, it's confidential you don't have to put your name on there or anything uh, as long as you have your one card to show, you can uh, you can grab whatever you need. With there being such a stigma around needing help from a food bank, do you notice people coming in and feeling embarrassed or acting more shy? Yeah, um, so last semester my I had a group project and we did it with the Purple Pantry. And um, people, we were doing an interview with um, one of the people that works there. And there was a, a girl that came in and... Um, she seemed kind of uncomfortable about coming in there with everybody in there, so we stepped out, let her do her thing, get her food, and then she was on the way. But um, I think there is a stigma involved with it. Like, people might be too proud to go in there and um, ask for help, you know, even if they need it. And from what you've seen, how many students do you think the Purple Pantry helps? Uh, at the beginning, there wasn't really that many because they didn't really – we didn't have much advertising and it was just starting so over time there's been um an increase in students that have come there because they know about it more now um they've done more marketing and stuff like that so it's, it's steadily growing and what is your experience of volunteering at the purple pantry like is it something that you get joy out of helping other people it's a good experience um you feel like you can actually make a difference in someone's life even if it's just one person you know um and it feels good to help people uh when they're in need so we can do that with the purple pantry and it's close to our community like i'm you're a part of the community when you're working there and the community comes in to help, get help so it feels good a lot of people don't know about it and it's a really useful thing to have on campus for like kids off campus that don't have meal plans and they're struggling to yeah. uh get food so it's a good resource to have is helping at food bank something you want to continue to do after you graduate and leave the purple pantry yeah i would like to i would like to because it makes you feel good as a person you know it's more fulfilling to help other people out and um see the people in need get the help that they need
how can people help if they want to donate to the Purple Pantry? Um, so they're on OrgSync, and you can go on there and sign up. It's not just the Purple Pantry also. It's like a part, the Purple Pantry is a part of the um, ECU Collegiate Recovery, which is they help with uh, recovering drug, drug addicts and um, people that just need help in ways like that. So uh, John Michael oversees that too. All right. Well, thank you very much, Travis, for your time. I really appreciate it. Next, we talked with George Young, the Eastern Regional Director of the Food Bank of Central and Eastern North Carolina. George has served as the director since December 2016, overseeing the food bank's efforts in 34 North Carolina counties. George, tell us how you got started at the food bank. My work has been in the nonprofit sector for the last 35 years. I was with the Muscular Dystrophy Association for 15 years, and I was with the Combined Federal Campaign, which is the federal government's giving program, and I was also with the United Way of the National Capital Area in Washington, D.C. for uh, seven years. How bad is food insecurity in eastern North Carolina? It's it's pretty surprising coming to North Carolina. You know, I worked in the, the Washington, D.C. bubble for several, several years, and when you come outside of the bubble, uh, it was pretty amazing to see um, how um, folks are living in certain communities. And here in North Carolina, particularly in eastern North Carolina, we have some of the poorest uh, counties and communities in the state, if not in the nation. And... Um, this has been a long-going uh, generational situation as people have uh, come forward, and it just hasn't uh, seen the jobs and the economic development needed to help people move forward. So when you go out into many of our communities, you're going to see a big disparity between uh, income levels, and uh, food insecurity is, is pretty prevalent in uh, knowing there's about 138,000 people, families, children, veterans, uh, seniors who are food insecure. That food insecurity means uh, a lack of access to uh, proper groceries, nutritious food, grocery stores, uh, what have you. And also, we're not talking about uh, folks that aren't working. Many of these families are working two or three jobs. Um, they're trying to put food on their tables. Um, we also have a big population now since Hurricane Florence who were devastated by the flooding, did not have flood insurance. So you have a lot of economic reasons why people are really struggling to put food on the table. In the two and a half or so years you've been working at the food banks, have you noticed it's gotten better or worse in terms of people needing help? The, the numbers have uh, dropped slightly in that um, because of the economy, uh, people have been able to, to get to work. But we're also seeing things hold pretty steady in that we have a population of uh, seniors. Many of us came to North Carolina from the north to retire. Uh, we came together as husband and wife. Uh, a spouse has passed away or gotten really sick. People are really struggling um, in our uh, final uh, years with the cost of medical cost and paying for medicines. And we're finding many seniors skipping their uh, prescribed medicines every other day uh, to stretch out that medicine. We're also seeing them skimp on meals. We also have many seniors who have pets and that pet is a family member, and they might be feeding the pet before they're feeding themselves. So um, you have seen a, a, a 
somewhat of a drop in uh, the number of people being served over the last course of years, but you also see a same tremendous population. I mean, if you're talking uh, 130,000 people or 100,000 people, it's still a lot of people uh, that need uh, food. And that's just in the eastern North Carolina area, correct? It's just in our in our 10-county service area between the Greenville branch and the New Bern branch. The Food Bank of Central and Eastern North Carolina is made up of 34-county service area from Raleigh to the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, we have six branches in our network that service so many of the counties. Food banks overall in the nation are divided up into service areas. The Food Bank of Central and Eastern North Carolina is part of what's called Feeding America. They are an umbrella of food banks, and we also uh, follow their lead and are a member of Feeding America to meet standards for food safety, food inspection, uh, food distribution training, and uh, we here in the East cover 10 counties with uh, two branches. And if someone wants to help out of the food bank and volunteer, what's the best way for them to get started with that? We have a, a great website, uh, foodbankcenc.org, and on there there are tabs for uh, about our volunteer programs. We have a great volunteer coordinator who coordinates volunteer projects between the Greenville and New Bern branches. Um, Brittany Freeze is our volunteer coordinator. She works uh, a schedule with many companies, community groups, and individuals to uh, move food out of here, either sorting, bagging, and boxing um, the food uh, on a weekly basis. And one area of, of volunteerism we really count on and, and are so grateful for are student volunteers and staff from uh, East Carolina University in that literally thousands of students have come here to volunteer. And uh, the campus also does a annual homecoming food drive. Many of the organizations do food drives. And then we also have uh, several thousand students come here to help literally sort bag and help us get the food prepared for distribution. And so a lot of it is uh, project-driven, schedule-driven, because it's food. Uh, when farmers bring gigantic uh, millions of pounds of produce, potatoes, corn, strawberries, whatever it may be, it needs to be immediately sorted and uh turned right around and sent out to our food pantry network. Between the Greenville and New Bern branches, we have over 200 registered food pantries. These are nonprofits which um, go through food safety, food distribution. Their, their representatives are giving ID cards so they can come to the warehouses and pick up food distributions. We're also delivering food to them uh, on a weekly basis. So food is coming into the warehouse and being turned right around in both the Greenville and New Bern locations. The food pantry pantries are the front line, and uh, we really count on them to uh, get the food out to the folks in the community. And it's a great network in that that's where it needs to be because these local people know where the local needs are. And we also uh, are great on trying to not have duplication in that there are many uh, heartfelt organizations that come to us that want to help distribute food. We'll ask them to do research, and there's 
there's a good chance right across the street there's already a food pantry doing this work. Can you go join with them or can you come up with some other uh, ministry or other support for the community as in distributing clothing, doing a thrift shop, uh, distributing furniture, helping repair homes, helping take care of the elderly? There's a lot of work that needs to be done out in these communities. So um, we have a very stringent application process and training programs that uh, individuals and communities that want to run a food pantry and be associated with the food bank has to go through. Uh, and we're also doing continuing education with our registered food pantries. We have quarterly talking councils where representatives it's mandatory for them to attend and we're doing capacity building food safety all types of training to keep them up to speed when it comes to the distribution of food we also do site visits to all our food pantries we're making sure that the food is being distributed properly it's being handled properly and that frankly uh, the food pantry or whoever's heading up the food pantry is properly serving the community they're not holding back. They're not just sharing it with their friends and family, that they are not turning people away, and that anyone that's in need, there's no means test. There's no um, eligibility requirements. If you come and ask for food, then the food bank is going to provide food, and our mission is that no one will be hungry. I think you guys are doing a great job here. I'm really thankful that there's people like you guys out there doing it. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast, George. Well, we really appreciate having you, and we just, again, really thank uh, East Carolina University for their tremendous support and all the students that come every year to help volunteer. It's, it's just awesome. We really appreciate it. A common issue faced by many Eastern North Carolinians isn't just accessing food, but accessing healthy food options. North Carolina has the 20th highest adult obesity rate in the nation, with 32% of its adult population being defined as obese. ECU Professor of Public Health in Eastern North Carolina native Dr. Stephanie Jilcott-Pitts details some of the challenges faced by Eastern North Carolinians attempting to access healthy food. So, Dr. Pitts, I want to start by asking, how big of an influence does poverty play in unhealthy eating? It's interesting how either obesity or, you know, undernutrition or overnutrition are both caused by those similar issues of poverty and a cycle of poverty, and then they lead to similar consequences, so people not being able to focus as well at school, not being able to um, maybe get get the education that they need for a good job that could then get them more financial resources to be able to afford healthier food. So I think there's some similarities, but differences as well. So that was a really insightful question. And can you explain what a food desert is? It's a term a lot of people will have heard at some point, but maybe fully don't understand what it means. Yeah, this has been um, debated a lot in the literature, what the exact definition is. The USDA defines it based on transportation access, poverty, so income, and then um, if a supermarket is within one mile of your home, home or residence in an urban area, in a rural area, they define it as 10 miles. So um, the USDA is looking at physical distance from your home as well as are you in a low-income census tract and is there um, adequate transportation to get from your home to this to the supermarket. So USDA is really basing it on access to supermarkets. Other people base it on similar distance measures um, and kind of look at 
a, a variety of different food stores. So the other term that's being um, promoted a little more these days is the idea of a food swamp. So that's um, when you have more unhealthy options than healthy options, more fast food, more convenience stores versus fewer farmers markets, fewer supermarkets that have healthy options. So we're seeing that term a little bit more, um, and there's no set definition for that one either. Um, people kind of try to define it based on distance and the, the different types of food venues that are available. So I guess that's my two cents on food deserts. <laughs> I agree, it gets thrown around a lot, and there's not a lot of... And, and if you're even if you're in a food desert, that doesn't mean you're doomed. Yeah. You can obviously overcome those transportation barriers if you have your own vehicle and if you have a supermarket nearby. A lot of people don't even go to their nearest supermarket. They go to a supermarket that either they like the products better or they like the prices better or some combination of all of that. How is nutrition currently taught at a school like ECU? Do you think more nutrition classes are needed? Is there more that you think that they can do? Mm -hmm. Well, probably, yeah, more more nutrition education within those college classes would be great. Um, I know our the former dean of our medical school, Paul Cunningham, used to talk about ECU students being ambassadors of health throughout Eastern North Carolina. So once people graduate and go and work in Eastern North Carolina, they can talk about preventive health. They can talk about exercise, which is really important, and also nutrition and how those are just crucial to preventing chronic disease. Um, what else can ECU do? I mean, I don't know. Um, I think there's been a lot of really neat efforts to uh, promote healthier foods throughout the campus among students. And then again, those students will talk to their families and their relatives in Eastern North Carolina and promote health and nutrition that way. Um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of really cool research projects going on that people are doing to try to promote health and nutrition uh, throughout Greenville and Eastern North Carolina. So what's the most important thing that somebody should know if they're just learning about nutrition? You know, there's so many different diets around today. It can be hard for people to understand what works versus what's actually just popular. Yeah. yeah. Uh, nutrition science is always evolving, and you don't feel like you can ever get the straight truth. But I say I would go back to what your grandmother or your mother said, eat your fruits and vegetables. I mean, it's just as simple as that. Um Plenty of uh, fresh, frozen, or canned fruits and vegetables, and I think um, you're on the way to good health. And drink water. And for people who aren't in school today to take nutrition classes, where would you recommend they go to get more information? That's a good question. The um, USDA website, I would say, and like the MyPlate website, um, going to those websites and learning more. Um, Walter Willett is a Harvard uh, epidemiologist who's um, done these big cohort studies with nurses and physicians for years and done a lot of analyses on their diet and their health outcomes. And he's written um, a lot of really great scholarly articles and also has a book. I think it's called Eat, Drink, and Be Merry, maybe. Um, so that's another really good resource. Um Reading up on the Mediterranean diet, I think that's that's one of those diets you hear about, but it's based in fruits and vegetables and um, healthy fats and lean proteins. And uh, reading up on the Mediterranean diet, I think, is a very um, good start also. 
Dr. Pitts, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. And thank you. I've enjoyed it. Among the biggest hurdles for would-be healthy eaters is knowing how and what to eat. For many of us growing up, the food pyramid was the golden rule when it came to what goes on your plates. ECU Professor of Nutrition Science, Dr. Virginia Stage, details how the pyramid has changed and what we should focus on when it comes to nutrition education. I am here with Dr. Virginia Stage, an Associate Professor of Nutrition Sciences. Dr. Stage, thank you for coming. No problem. So, Dr. Stage, to start things out, I was wondering, how is nutrition taught in schools today? And has that really changed at all since I was young? I remember we had the food pyramid that we learned. Have they switched to any other different way of teaching it now? That's kind of a complicated question, actually. Um, Food education and nutrition education are similar, but a little different. Uh, neither of them, I would say, are actually taught very much in the school um, setting. In North Carolina, we have something called helpful living standards. And it's a whole set of standards that follows kids from kindergarten all the way up to 12th grade. It covers, though, all things health. So nutrition is just a really small piece of that. And in fact, it does still focus a whole lot on the USDA guidelines, which you're talking about. Um, When you were growing up with the food pyramid, now it's actually my plate. So it looks a little different. It actually looks more like a plate um, within a glass of milk or water up at the top. Um, But how those standards in North Carolina and across the nation are implemented in the classrooms are actually very dependent on what the teachers choose to do. And because nutrition and food education are not actually tested standards, they don't always get a lot of attention in the classroom setting. Um, Sometimes what we find is teachers will wait sort of towards the end of the year when the EOGs are over, those end of grade exams, and when there's some extra time in the schedule, and then they'll do some nutrition. Now, if you have a teacher that's much more dedicated and they're very bought in to teaching about food and nutrition education, they most certainly do implement much more. But we're actually finding across the literature and really across our state and other states that teacher professional development in food and nutrition education is very, very limited. Um, And so you have that as a problem, too. If they're not confident in their own information about food and nutrition, they're probably less likely to dive very deep into it. And it does get left to my plate, which is what you've had experience with before. When doing research for our interview, I saw that you looked into how important a diet was during the first five years of a person's life when it comes to their development. Can you tell me a little bit about what you learned from that research? Oh, it's critical. It is critical. In fact, when I first started down the road of working in schools um, with nutrition, it it began here at ECU when I was an undergraduate. I went to school here and worked in K-12. And the whole reason why I moved down to preschool and younger was because I recognized that a lot of these kids had already had these health behaviors established and we actually needed to start a lot earlier. So those first five years, even the first 1,000 days, are extremely critical. Um, Right now, most of my work focuses in preschool and younger for that reason, and there are lots of resources for families. Um, There's the Women, Infant, and Children program, which serves pregnant women while they're pregnant, clearly, and then once they give birth, um, up through five, so it'll provide nutrition education as well as benefits for food um, for children, and then, of course, the the family in that capacity, particularly if the mother's breastfeeding, um, will provide 
provide formula, all kinds of uh, benefits for these families that may be insecure in food needs or just need the education. And then there's schools. So once they enter into schools or preschools, there's additional um, support there via meals that are offered. So if it's a Head Start program, which is the federally funded preschool, they will receive um, meals and snacks by attending those programs that um, follow federal regulations in line with MyPlate, USDA guidelines. Um, if they attend other preschools in North Carolina, we're lucky that North Carolina actually then goes ahead and mandates that those preschools also follow the federal guidelines for nutrition. Um, so there are lots of resources in that way as well for families to kind of get information from those programs to help them learn more about the importance of nutrition in the early years and then hopefully also provide that nutrition through um, financial and or food-based resources. In your opinion, is it more important that kids get the proper information in school or is it more important if their parents are properly informed so they don't pass bad eating habits along to the kids? What I like to look at it as is a more holistic approach versus a lot of people like to point, okay, well, you're working with kids or you're working with teachers, but what about the parents or you're working with parents? But what about the kids? What about the teachers? We've found you really can't focus on one. You've got to focus really on all three of them. You need to focus on the multiple environments that children are going to interact with and the adults in those environments. So parents, yes, number one. A lot of times parents influence their kids in ways that we don't necessarily want. <laughs> Even if you don't realize it, children watch what we do. They don't always listen to what we say. It's that old um, saying of, you know, do what I say, not what I do. You know, children do the opposite. So if the parent is not eating their fruits and vegetables, if the parent is not providing those foods, particularly to the younger children that don't have the ability to just go to the grocery store, um, then it can be problematic. So yes, parent education is critical, but so is teacher education because a lot of children spend a lot of time, actually most of their day in the school setting. And the teacher is just as much of an important role model as um, the parent is in that situation. But finally, the child themselves, even at young ages as one, two, three, four, and five, they can be advocates. So if you can educate them and really expose them to lots of good, healthy foods, lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, and then get them moving. A lot of times that two, three, four-year-old can nag their parent in ways that gets them interested in purchasing those foods. So if, say, at the school setting, we expose them to a new interesting fruit, a kiwi or a new vegetable, maybe they don't have a lot of experience with just fresh broccoli. In the store, they might then ask their parent, oh, at school we had this, can we get that? And so this is sort of flipping the switch a little bit and using the child as the agent of change. Now that alone is not going to work. You have to have all of those parts kind of working together. And if you can intervene on everybody, eventually you have these little baby steps where we can make some movement. And long term, that child starts to have more positive health behaviors. That means the things that kids get fed at school is important too, right? Because I remember in high school, we would have our little square cardboard pizza, a scoop of some soggy wet broccoli, and then like a little thing of chocolate milk. And we they never really talked to us about whether or not that was healthy. They just said to eat it. 
and we knew it didn't taste good. Didn't taste good, yeah. So now you're getting into the environmental setting, which is also critical. So not just what the adults are teaching you or modeling, but also the access and availability to those healthy foods. We have seen impressive changes in our school food system um, since 2010. And 2010 was when K-12 really saw a change and the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, which was associated with Michelle Obama's um, Let's Move campaign. It's still um, up and thrive, thriving. Uh, in 2006, there was a reauthorization, and we're continuing to move forward with those changes. And we, over time, have seen really positive changes in children's dietary quality, increasing fruit and vegetable consumption, et cetera. In 2016, the um, school meals that are provided for children five and under, which is the um, child and adult food program, they got enough facelift, you could say, to make them more in line with the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. And so now the preschoolers are also getting much better foods. Now, there's flexibility to that, right? Like different variations at the school level and how those meals are prepared are going to be different. Um, You're going to hear things from kids that maybe they don't like what's being served, but um, we're in a work in progress. Schools are still trying to do their best within the means of their budget, and that's part of the challenge. So more funding is always good for school meals. That's a huge way to reduce food insecurities among children that might not have um, access to helpful food at home. Um, And so the more we can do to improve those school environments, Pitt County, by the way, is a fabulous example of school food done really well. Um, They have a great school food program. Kids interact with those foods and, and enjoy those foods. They even have a food Explorer, where they introduce new foods that they think are a little bit novel in a way that is interesting and engaging to children to make them want to eat that. And it goes from K all the way up to high school. Um, So we've got a good program here locally. We would like to model that in the other counties that need the support out in our eastern, um, rural eastern North Carolina. I really like that program. And a program like that seems important to me, too, because so many kids see a new food and they say they don't like it. But if you ask them if they've ever had it, they'll say, no, but I don't like it. Yep. And you know what? A lot of that's exposure. So there's something called neophobia, which is the fear of the new. And it's um, been pretty well studied, particularly in young children, because it actually starts around 15 months. (laughs) It's like from the very beginning, right? 15 months is, you know, they're not even a year and a half yet, and we're already starting the picky eating. But what the research shows is actually the more foods that we can expose children to, the less likely it's going to be new, right? So what they're fearful of is the new, not necessarily the food itself. It's just that it's new and different, and I've never had that before. And so the more foods is there little that we can expose them to, and not just different foods, but different textures, different colors, um, different tastes, different preparation methods. More of that happening younger makes it less of a problem when they're older. So we find that kids that are exposed, even in the womb, believe that or not, even the mother's diet um, when she is eating as a pregnant woman can influence those long-term preferences. So even starting with pregnant women and getting them to eat more fruits and vegetables. But long-term, we know that it reduces that picky eating. It reduces the neophobia. The challenge is 
when we have families that are low income, that are food insecure, you're not going to give your child peas 15 times before you figure they don't like it. It's probably going to be a couple times. But what the literature says is that we actually need to do it about eight to 15 times before a child will start to like foods that are harder to like, like a broccoli or even a peas. Um, And so it really is critical that we keep offering those foods and that we model as well, meaning that you can't just offer broccoli to the child and think they're going to eat it. You have to eat it too. (laughs) Um, But that exposure is really critical. And this is where schools can be super helpful because if parents are offering it at home and then schools are offering it on the menus, then those eight to 15 exposures don't seem quite as daunting, right? Because it's a partnership. Yeah. So again, it's that triangle of parent, child, and teacher working together. People are hearing this and they're just starting to get into nutrition and healthier eating habits. Is there something that you think they should read or something that you just think they should generally know? Yeah, you're going to hate my response because <laughs> I'm going to tell you to go to my plate. Um, I would say that my paint materials, we have evolved a lot since um, what you remember, which was the, the pyramid with the grains and the, um, I would say USDA's my plate and it should, myplate.gov is the website is really the best place to start because it is going to be the most um, easy to understand information, straightforward. It's also very based in the science. So our recommendations that we give the nation are not just sort of ideas that we've come up with. These are based in the most recent science and our understanding of nutrition. And if you look over the years, it looks like we've changed quite a bit in what we're saying, but honestly, we really haven't. Our core message as um, nutrition professionals, as registered dietitians, has always been consistent. We want you to eat more fruits and vegetables. I know that part's not as exciting. (laughs) We've never changed on that. You want to eat more fruits and vegetables. We still think whole grains is important. Low-fat dairy, lean protein and meats, these are all things that we've been saying for years. I think where that gets muddied is all of the other noise in the environment. So there's a lot of people that think they know a lot about nutrition. And there's a lot of fad diets that come up. I think right now the most current thing is the keto diet and um, the paleo, and there's a number of other ones. What I would encourage you to do is just focus on good, wholesome nutrition. Keep things as unprocessed as possible. Eat your fruits and vegetables and your whole grains. Um, Try not to eat as much prepackaged stuff because that's going to be higher in sodium and potentially higher in saturated fat, and those are things we don't recommend as much. But honestly, that my plate is straightforward and to the point. It's actually right behind you in this office. Um, But it really does communicate the key messages that are important. And then what I would say is ignore the noise. Anything that seems like it's an incredible promise that it's going to, you know, cure a disease or help you lose 10 pounds in a week, these are all red flags that probably mean that these are not as healthy for you as you would hope. There is no magic pill. It is every day eating a well-balanced diet and knowing normal is sometime eating a little more. Normal is eating things that you might think are not good for you. We don't really consider foods being good and bad. We really think of them as more foods that we would eat all the time and foods that we don't eat as much. So, you know, a hamburger with french fries, we're not going to say you can never eat that. 
that's okay to eat every now and then. It's just not something you want to eat every day. <laughs> um, so it's keeping things in balance is what's really critical. So it's consistency of a healthy diet that gives you room for variation in your daily life is the most important thing. Exactly. Yeah, and know that it's okay and it's normal to, to splurge every now and then. Totally normal. And physical activity cannot be left off of this. I know the new My Plate doesn't actually have the little guy that used to be on the one before running up the stairs. Um, it is more just focused on the dietary, but it still recognizes the critical importance of physical activity. We have to move our bodies. We have to get up and, um, you know, engage in physical activity that's good for our heart, that's good for our muscle tone and our bone strength, all of these things. And again, consistency, doing this consistently over your life is what's going to be really helpful to um, leading a healthy lifestyle, but also leading a long life. Well, Dr. Stage, thank you very much for educating me on this entire subject. I really appreciate you taking this time out. No problem. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to this episode of the ECU Ready Podcast. I'm your host, Lamar Gilchrist. See you next time.